Welcome to Mindful We. Welcome to Mindful We. I am here with Keisha Green, Dr. Keisha Green. <laughs> um, so Keisha, I met Keisha when I went to McGill, um, grad school. I did my master's at McGill and uh, that's where I met Keisha. And after we completed our two years in Montreal, we kind of... Um, went our own ways and we reconnected again at uh, Black Creek Community Health Center where we uh, started working together. I think it was like five years, right? Five or at six. At Black Creek? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think like five or six years. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were both therapists on the same team. So mm -hmm. we met each other at least once every week and mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, got really close and stayed connected, even though now we are in different places once again. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you so much for being here, Keisha, and <laughs> having welcome. this conversation with me. Um, Keisha just finished her dissertation. Um, I would, I think it would be super amazing if you can tell us a bit about uh, your dissertation, because I think it also plays, uh, it may go hand in hand with uh, where we're going to take this conversation. Sure. Okay. Um, so I recently completed my doctorate in education at Boise at U of T, and my dissertation was entitled A Rough Road to the Stars. Um, looking at anti-Black racism as it affects Black Canadians and the ways that that can be mediated through resistance slash resilience factors. And so my research was actually the first time that I've done human research. My past experiences mm -hmm. have been with like zebrafish and rats <laughs> <laughs> ultimately. And so this was a very unique experience to begin to kind of talk mm -hmm. about something that we kind of know quite well, mm -hmm. it, as racialized individuals, we kind of know that there is this sort mm -hmm. of inherent everyday racism that mm -hmm. is experienced. But a lot of the literature really kind of talks about racism in the context of African-Americans. Right. And we know that the experience in the States is very different from Canada, mm -hmm. especially the ways that we talk about race. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., they kind of acknowledge that they had slaves and they acknowledge the ways in which that's impacted different structures and institutions and the everyday lives of black individuals. But in Canada, unless you really do your own research, you're not really taught that Canada had slaves. Yeah. You're not really taught about the ways in which institutions and systems perpetuate the racism that came as a result of, you know, European empire essentially colonizing right. Canada. Mm -hmm. And when we do talk about racism in Canada, we kind of talk about settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. So particularly with the indigenous and yeah. aboriginal folks mm -hmm. and the ways in which, you know, they were displaced as a result of European settlers coming in. But there isn't any conversation about the ways in which black Mm -hmm. individuals and black bodies were, you know, used and abused right. within the Canadian context. Yeah. And so my research really wanted to kind of look at mm -hmm. the ways in which black Canadians experience everyday racism, how it is that that impacts them in terms of their emotional, psychological and physical well-being. Mm -hmm. And then also kind of taking it a step further to not just focus on the deficits, but to focus on the strengths of how it is that you can mediate those impacts. What mm -hmm. are the things that we do that give us a sense of 
you know, self that give us a, a space to be able to heal, a place mm-hmm. to be able to process, a place to be able to create counter narratives. And that's mm-hmm. essentially what's encompassed within resilience and resistance factors. Mm-hmm. Can you please share more about the resilience and resistance factors? Sure. Yeah. And so a lot of the participants, so I interviewed 10 participants, mm-hmm. um, all who self-identified as Black Canadians of various ages and stages in their lives. And all had kind of identified, you know, the ways in which their experiences have impacted them. And so when it came to thinking about, okay, well, how is it that you were able to work through it? How are you able to understand it? A lot of the resilience factors that came out were ones that we are quite familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, spirituality and religion, obviously, mm-hmm. being able to kind of place yourself in the context of, you know, understanding that people might be responding to you in a particular way, but you don't need to take that on. You can kind of put that in the hands of a higher power Mm -hmm. or being able to kind of understand your place in the world as Mm -hmm. not being, you know, the central focus of people's critiques. But in fact, people's critiques kind of come from their own experiences, Mm -hmm. which is a very sort of spiritual lens. And so being able to use that as a way to create a counter narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that really came up that was really interesting was this idea of privilege. Mm -hmm. And so the majority of my participants did hold, you know, some sort of academic employment Mm -hmm. or financial privilege. And in holding that privilege, they were able to understand that that helps them to navigate certain spaces. If there are spaces where they're experiencing a lot of racism, maybe they choose to move out of that space. Maybe they find a different employer. Maybe they choose to move into a different neighborhood. Maybe they choose to distance themselves from particular individuals because they're not as tied to Mm -hmm. those places. There's more fluidity in their ability to navigate. And so I think privilege is something that comes up often, but is not always discussed because, you know, black and brown faces aren't always deemed to be deserving Mm -hmm. of privilege. Privilege is very much sort of attributed to, you know, Caucasian Mm -hmm. or white faces. And so I think client, the participants who were able to really identify that as being like a large source of their, you know, resilience and resistance was able to acknowledge that in reaching a place of privilege, they also had to stand up in their awareness of self and be like, you know, hey, I belong here. Mm-hmm. I have rights here. Yes, I can be a different version of myself than what you think I am. And mm-hmm. I don't have to prove to you that I am deserving right. of your respect, mm-hmm. deserving of your acceptance, deserving of a place in your world. Like I can just take that mm-hmm. because it's something that I have earned based off of all of the work that I've put in in order yeah. to get into this place of privilege. For sure. And so, you know, some of the other factors that came up was around, you know, connecting with other people, obviously, either family and friends or even with a therapist, mm-hmm. being able to talk through your experiences, understand your experiences, be able to, as I said before, create counter narratives. There was a large piece around your racial identity mm-hmm. and how that kind of develops throughout your journey of experiencing racism and then reaching a place where you're not as impacted by your racism. And so mm-hmm. ultimately with racial identity theory, when it is that you've reached like the the last stage with this externalization, mm-hmm. it's a place where you are able to kind of acknowledge that, okay, these are all of the experiences that I've had in the past. This is how it shaped my awareness of the world. Right. It could lead me to understand how to navigate spaces in a particular way, but I'm no longer carrying the burden of being defined by my experience. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately the research really showed that as much as there are these really heavy detrimental impacts of racism that really impacts 
your ability to manage your affect, your hypervigilance, your openness to connecting with other people, your own physical well-being in terms of like stress in your body, disconnecting from your body, disconnecting from your emotions. There's also this very real awareness that black individuals are quite resilient. We've mm-hmm. always been very mm-hmm. resilient. Yeah. And so why not focus on the ways in which we can you know, improve and empower individuals so that they can feel like they have access mm-hmm. to these factors. Because mm-hmm. these factors exist within. 100%. It's just a matter of being able to sort of pull it out yeah. and kind of allow for folks to be like, okay, yeah, this is something that I can do. Mm-hmm. And that's something that becomes really beneficial in the therapeutic process because mm-hmm. I'm a registered psychotherapist by trade. And so obviously like my research informs my practical Mm -hmm. experiences and vice versa. And so being able to bring that into a session can be really empowering and really connecting. Mm -hmm. And ultimately the goal of therapy is really to allow somebody to like step into their whole selves Mm -hmm. and to be aware of what that feels like. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. You you said that so beautifully. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I want to, so you know my affinity to mindfulness and meditation. (laughs) Um, You know that I'm in love with it. And, uh, and I'm curious, you, you know, you kind of touched on it when you spoke about spirituality, but I guess, you know, before we talk about um, um, other people, can you share a bit about yourself and um, you as a therapist now and, you know, maybe bef- prior if, if that's something you want to touch on, but um, how you see your own development um, in terms of spirituality or mindfulness? Because I know we've taught a few mindfulness things together as well. So mm. um, I'm curious to know how it impact, how it has impacted you or how it has served you, or if it hasn't served you, that's okay too, mm-hmm. um, personally and professionally. Okay. And so personally, I think my journey of, of mindfulness or becoming mindfully aware, I think, has been kind of a process that I've been going through since I became aware of exactly what mindfulness was. Mm-hmm. And so you would think that I would have an awareness of mindfulness from like when I was in my undergrad or when no. I was in my master's, but actually yeah. the concept of mindfulness didn't really come to my conscious awareness mm-hmm. until I had been practicing for a few years. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about it in the context of, of sessions as deep mm-hmm. breathing and mm-hmm. guided meditations, progressive muscle relaxations, body scans, etc. Mm-hmm. And yes, I used to talk about it, but you know, to say that I practiced it firsthand, mm-hmm. I didn't. Yeah, it's really hard. (laughs) And like maybe that makes me slightly a bit of a hypocrite suggesting that clients do it and I didn't do it myself. But I feel like it was just because personally where I was at, I didn't have the capacity Mm -hmm. to really do mindfulness. It was very much like trying to get everything done that I needed to get done Mm -hmm. with work and with, you know, personal life and with school once I started back in school again. And so like it was a lot. Mm -hmm. I feel like my... Like being able to actually sit in silence and do guided meditations and focus on my body is something that really has come to the forefront of my mind in the last two, three years. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because I started doing mindfulness 
exercises in sessions with clients, mm-hmm. but then also began to kind of reflect on how is my body feeling right yeah. now? Where are my thoughts right now? Am I stressed <laughs> about something? Is that being reflected in mm-hmm. the way that I'm holding my body? Mm-hmm. And then being really intentional about letting that go. Yeah. And once I was able to begin to do that practice, I was like, oh, this feels really nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Like this helps me to be able to just have more capacity to deal with yes. my clients, have more so. capacity to deal with you know, other people in my day today and also yes. to deal with, you know, public transit because I'm a commuter. Yes. And so there's a lot of things that sort of came into the forefront. And then, you know, the pandemic mm-hmm. happened and that yeah. meant that I was forced to spend a lot of time in my house. And that was really difficult mm-hmm. because now I'm doing difficult work with difficult clients mm-hmm. in my house. Mm-hmm. And that made me carry a lot of stress. For sure. Yeah. And so I feel like mindfulness was also really helpful in being able to just allow me to find a bit of space to breathe and disconnect Mm -hmm. and be able to focus more on me and not so much on others. Mm -hmm. And professionally, in all of the groups that I'm running right now, I start every group with a mindfulness practice. Yay! (laughs) That makes me so happy to hear. So in my skills groups, in my trauma groups, in my you know, interpersonal groups, like it all starts with Mm -hmm. like a five, 10, 12 minute Mm -hmm. guided meditation. And I find that whatever meditation I bring in, whatever mindfulness exercise I bring in is usually related to something that I think can be really beneficial to the, to the people in the group, but also to me. Yes. If I'm noticing that I'm holding a lot of tension, then maybe I'm doing an exercise where I'm inviting people to like relax Mm -hmm. their, like relax from head to toe and just kind of notice what that feels like. Or if I'm, feeling like my head is very busy. Maybe I do something that's a bit more active, like Mm -hmm. five things you can see, four things you can smell, Mm -hmm. three things you can touch. And like really being able to incorporate that Mm -hmm. into sessions so that I'm getting Mm -hmm. multiple mindfulness practices throughout the course of a week professionally, like doing it professionally, but also feeling it personally. And then also being able to facilitate it for clients so that they're able to be like, oh, This is what mindfulness looks like. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is not emptying your mind Mm -hmm. like the Insight app might tell you to. And the Insight (laughs) app is, you know, perfectly okay. But I find that a lot of people get discouraged when they're like, empty your mind. And you're Mm. like, well, I can't empty my mind. Yeah. And that's not necessarily the goal of mindfulness either. Exactly. And so I think being able to really understand for myself that Mm -hmm. mindfulness is not about emptying your mind. Mindfulness is not always meant to make you feel better. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is really meant to make that mind-body connection Mm -hmm. so that you know what you're thinking, what your body is feeling, what emotions you're experiencing in Mm -hmm. the moment and using that to inform your present moment experience in order to like determine maybe what the rest of your day looks like. Yeah, And so I think once I understood that, it was a lot easier for me to kind of share that with other people because I think you kind of have to reach that point yeah before you're able to really understand obviously like all the science with the sympathetic parasympathetic nervous system and all of the fight flight freeze Mm -hmm. brainstem response stuff but that is a lot easier to explain when you're able to kind of understand that oh the deep breathing allows for me to disconnect from the thoughts reconnect with the body yes Yes, yes. So it's been a journey. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I feel like I'm in a really good place now compared yeah. to where I might have been a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And and it I and I think it's gonna con- it's going to continue to be a journey. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, I love, uh, thank you for sharing about the body scan and even just facilitating mindfulness has such a huge impact on the facilitator, which is mm-hmm. also why I love doing the guided <laughs> meditations because it keeps me accountable and yes. it keeps me in check with, you know, this is something that I value. This is something that I actually works for me. So why am I not doing it on a regular mm-hmm. basis, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, thank you. Um So what I also want to speak to you about, Keisha, is, you know, on the topic of mindfulness, how that, how mindfulness has been used or can be used um, to, to um, deal with or cope with uh, the racial issues that all racialized human beings go through Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis, right? So Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing some of the resiliency factors that your research has, um, you know, brought to light. Um, And I guess more specifically, you know, because I love speaking about (laughs) mindfulness, I want to know more specifically about mindfulness and and that intersectionality with uh, racism or the experience of being racialized, a, race, a racialized human being? Well, I think when it is that you're thinking about the impacts of racism, yeah, like it kind of disconnects you from who you are. Yeah. Right? Like it separates you. Mm-hmm. You begin to disconnect from your body. You focus more on your thoughts, which kind of keeps you firmly in the future or mm-hmm. firmly in the past. past and very yeah. much, you know, disconnected from the present. Yeah. Because if you are you know, presently oriented and you're able to kind of like feel all the things that your Mm -hmm. body is going through when you're dealing with these everyday experiences of racism, like that could be really overwhelming Mm -hmm. and very uncomfortable and nobody wants to sit with that. And so disconnection from the body, like dissociation, focusing on the thoughts becomes, you know, safer, quote unquote, than sitting in the emotion. It's protective, right? It's protective, yeah, yeah, ultimately. (laughs) And so I think when it is that you're working on sort of understanding your trauma, Mm -hmm. uh, your racial trauma in particular, and kind of beginning to, you know, understand this is how it's impacted me. This is what I'm carrying with me. This is what I maybe need to process. This Mm -hmm. is what maybe makes me feel uncomfortable in my body bringing in mindfulness becomes helpful Mm -hmm. because then you're able to kind of understand more fulsomely Mm -hmm. how your experiences are being carried in your body. Mm -hmm. Because we know that memories can kind Mm -hmm. of be stored in -hmm. our brains and kind of be stored in words and in pictures. Mm -hmm. But we also know that memories can be stored in the body. And that gets reactivated when we're in triggering situations either with similar individuals in similar places or similar circumstances. And so when your body starts to get anxious, when your body starts to feel hyper aroused, then that is the place where mindfulness can come into play, Mm -hmm. where you can ask a client to describe what it is they're feeling in Mm -hmm. their body and to be able to understand how their racing thoughts, maybe Mm -hmm. worrying about a situation that might recur, Mm -hmm. is playing out in the activation of their body. Yeah. With their breathing changing, with their heart rate changing, like preparing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. essentially to like fight or flight or freeze or collapse. Yeah, yeah. But being able to bridge that gap, bridge that, make that connection allows for clients to be like, oh, there's a lot more going on here mm-hmm. than just what's going on in my head. Yes. And all of these things are connected. They're yes. not like individual things that are happening, right. which I think happens often in mm-hmm. like trauma yeah. experiences. Folks go to the doctor, they get mm-hmm. diagnosed with a multitude of different yeah. things because all of their symptoms seem to be different. Yeah. When in reality, they're all connected. Yeah. And so mindfulness 
can be helpful in identifying all of those pieces, but mindfulness can also be really helpful as a coping mechanism in order to be able to ground Mm -hmm. in the moment, Mm -hmm. to be able to acknowledge that, oh, my shoulders are feeling tight. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be intentional about like maybe breathing into the space between Mm -hmm. my shoulders or I'm noticing Mm -hmm. that, you know, my thoughts are starting to track away, like and being curious about Mm -hmm. that. Right. And so ultimately, it just helps to cope. It helps you to cope because it yeah. just gives you another intervention point, For gives sure. you more insight. Yeah. And so I feel like most folks that I talked to identified that mindfulness became easier to access when they were able to understand what it was that was happening in their bodies. Mm-hmm. That's when it became a coping mechanism. That's when it essentially became safe enough mm-hmm. for them to be able to ground themselves in their bodies and in the present because they were able to kind of work through some of the more tumultuous emotional pieces to create that body safety. Mm. You said that very beautifully. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, one of the things that came to me when you were sharing about sharing earlier, how you weren't, even though you knew this was like a great tool, you weren't practicing because you had so many other things going on. Mm-hmm. It's It takes an active effort mm-hmm. to actually practice mindfulness, right? Yeah. And it, it, and sometimes it, it can be exhausting, yeah. right? And it, it, it's not, like you mentioned, it's not necessarily um, relaxing always at the end of it, right? And mm-hmm. um, yeah, a huge piece is that internal awareness and acceptance and you know, grounding and learning and understanding yourself in that moment. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, I feel like uh, I'm super grateful. I feel you're <laughs> brilliant, Keisha, and you are currently and will continue to do amazing things. Um, and uh, thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs>